It's really wonderful to see so many, so many familiar faces and longtime students, and uh, you will not be disappointed. Um, we're, ve we're very excited about having Bhante Samahita here tonight. He's been here once before. How many of you saw him the first time he was here? Back in January, I think? So the, most of you are in for a treat. So he's, uh, Bhante Samahita is from Denmark, and he was a doctor uh, and then an associate professor. And uh, when he was about 42, he became a monk. And he has lived in Sri Lanka for the last 16 years as a forest monk. And uh, it's inter interesting that the forest he lives in is up above the village where Bhante Bhadia and Bhante Asaji lived. That's where they, their families are and where they, where they were as little boys. And they both, their, their moms had uh, given them dana to take up to feed the monk who was living up in the Nagas Mountains up above their village. So that was something they discovered when they told their mothers that this monk was coming. So they, they have a special connection with him now. But he's, he is, some of you may follow him on YouTube. I've been following him for years before before I ever met him when he was here in January. So it was exciting for me just to have listened to him talk and seen him taking his trips, talking as he walks through the, the, uh, the, the, the bushes and the shrubs and the trees that are all around his hermitage. So he is a very wonderful teacher and he's here uh, we are very lucky that he's here with us because he's teaching at the Theosophical Society on Friday night at 7. He'll be at the Theosophical Society, and his talk is on the Four Noble Truths and the Three Universal Signs. So if you've, I'd really encourage it if you've signed up for the precepts because this is what we've been talking about for so many months. Um, that's that's a talk, 7 to 9. And then on Saturday, this Saturday, he's doing a one-day retreat, meditation retreat, at the Theosophical Society from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So if you can make it to that, there's still room. You can still sign up. And it's, it, it's on the same topic he'll be talking about tonight. So the four, the four supreme dwellings, or the infinite dwellings, uh, and these are the meditation object, objects that the Buddha taught that were, most of you may be familiar with, but Bhante's teaching is really uh, inspiring. And he's, uh, he teaches very, he's, 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 his teachings really go back to the heart of the Buddha's teachings. So, I know you'll enjoy listening to him, and we may have time for questions, but he'll talk and we'll also have time to meditate. So we're, we've passed out these flyers from the Theosophical Society, and if you get it, stick it in your pocket. If you can, if you can make it, you've, it's plenty of time to register for Saturday, and Friday you don't have to register. Then after that, he's going to... Um, Venerable Panyawati's retreat center um, 
Hartwood Retreat Center in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and he's doing a four-day meditation retreat there. So we've got him when he's fresh. (laughs) (laughs) He's been back in Denmark recently because he's taking care of his father, who is... Who is, uh, who is declining, but he's taking care of his father while he needs to do that, and then he'll go back to Sri Lanka, back to, back to his hermitage there. So thank you so much for coming and giving us your... Yeah, thank you to you, too. It's good to see so many known faces here. I've seen before. It's good to be back in this wonderful room. So the plan is to talk a little bit about these four infinite states that are part of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha, he gave 40 meditation objects, we say classically, and four of them is these. I think they are, they are familiar to you, but I think it's, it's, sometimes it's good to, to reiterate, just like learning, playing a violin or learning to bicycle. It takes reiterations. You have to do it many times before you're perfect at it. Then also to reiterate how you do this uh, in, in the way the Buddha taught, that's, I think, often uh, it's a good thing. It's often advantageous. i just like to say also, is today is a very advantageous day because today is Nikini Puya Day. So it's a full moon day today. And uh, Nikini Puya Day is, is special because it's on this day that the text, the entire text was recited at the first Buddhist council, the, the first Dhamma Sangayana that was uh, after the Buddha's death. So we usually say the Buddha, he died 483 BC, so approximately 2,500 years ago. And then after his death, uh, Mahakasapa recited over the first, the first Buddhist council where the recitation was done after agreement about 500 Arahants, one of them, his, his cousin Ananda, uh, who could remember, he has kind of like photographic memory. And so they, they then agreed about what the Buddha actually have said. And that's why we have a collection of texts that is very well preserved and today is almost uniquely uh, preserved in, in, in the literature. So we have a fairly good grasp about what this enlightened being, which is exceedingly rare, that can pass 60 universes without an enlightened being come, comes here. So that we have the exact words of his is very important. And this they agreed about on, on this very day, started the, this first Buddhist council. Uh, 2,500 years ago. It's another reason is that today is what we call Pasuba's day. Today the monks can enter the range retreat. If we did, if we didn't enter the retreat one month before here, then monks can enter this retreat at this very day also. But uh, I think it's 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 very inspiring that that this text were recited. I don't know you mentor if you. If you read the text, then often there is a, uh, many of the texts are recited from a place uh, called uh, Rajagaha. He had a kind of like meditation hut up uh, very high on the cliff. And a little lower on the same mountain in Rajagaha, in modern-day Raikia, there was seven caves, a large uh, opening outside. And there the first council was held. Interestingly, uh, King Bimbisara, which was his best friend, and a, he was the same age as the Buddha, he was killed by his son on this same very month, uh, this same very mountain, by Ayatasattu, which was King Bimbisara's son. Very dramatic story. 
but nevertheless, King Ayatasattu, then after having realized that he, he killed his father, and it, and it was very dreadful that he's killed his father, then he agreed to build a very large wooden pavilion outside these caves. So these 500 enlightened beings, these 500 arahants, they could recite the text. And he said that it took seven months. So after seven months, they had put into a complete recitation of what the Buddha actually has said. And then they keep reciting it uh, in groups. And this is actually a fairly accurate method of preserving the text. Why so? Let's say we recite here a text. Then if anybody recite wrong, uh, this is the Venables know, then the, the other one will point it out. While usually you say scripture uh, copies is more accurate, but in the old days, if they had a manuscript, then you, you typically have a manuscript in, in either on bark leaves or on ola leaves, it's kind of palm leaves, like on Sri Lanka, then you will give this manuscript to a, a scribe, and then he will make one copy in the hand. And there we know they make small mistakes here and there. And we can see that they, they, from this manuscript, these mistakes, they proliferated up two times and was copied by the next one and next one and next one. While reciting the text actually preserves it accurately because there's an error, uh, error correcting mechanism every time it's recited. So this actually happens today. Uh, but nevertheless, the four Brahma Viharas is, as you probably know, uh, loving kindness or friendliness or goodwill, metta. The root word of metta is mitta, which means, basically means friend. I think friendliness is a better uh, expression or better uh, translation of of metta than loving kindness, but it's, it's a matter of taste. But friendliness is something that you can have to all beings. And this is, I think, important because we also call it Appamanya Brahma Vihara. Appamanya means infinite or endless, measureless. Uh, and Brahma Vihara can, can mean best dwelling, can also mean divine dwelling. Uh, Vihara can also mean a house or a temple. So it's, it, 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 one rendering could be that it's a divine dwelling that you dwell in or remain in like just like you remain inside a house. So if one can remain in friendliness, ideally one's entire life, uh, then uh, one is practicing this. It has a, uh, why is it called Brahma Vihara? The, the second reason is that according to Buddhist cosmology, there's 31 levels of existence and we are level five. And so if you go up to level, uh, level 12, then we are all, all these beings in these levels, they are driven by sense desire. But further on, from level 12 and upwards, then it's called Brahma Devas. It's a Brahma level. And they are not driven by sense desire. They are just, they're driven by desire to be, especially in, in a meditative state called jhana. And uh, they actually dwell in this dwelling their entire life. So they can live very fairly long, so, so something in the, in the order of 100 to 150 billion years. And they uh, don't have anger uh, in this entire period. So imagine that you have a life length of 150 billion years and you don't have one single moment of any opposition, any rigidity, any anger, any irritation. So it's, uh, and we, we share this with the Hindus, if we can, uh, if we can cultivate this through our life, and ideally also in the death moment, then we will come to be unified with these devas, we will actually attain the same level of consciousness at the moment of death, and therefore have the same destiny as these Brahma devas. The second one is compassion uh, or pity, 
is called karuna. We will go through them all. The third one is mutual joy, or I think it's better called altruistic joy, or rejoicing joy, then one rejoice in other beings' success. And the fourth one is equanimity. But if we start with the first is uh, friendliness. Uh, Buddhism is about cause and effect. So it's good to always uh, go back to say, uh, what if I want to have a special mental state? How can I get that? How can I come into friendliness if I'm in irritation or in opposition or in, in dissatisfaction or any other kind of state other than friendliness? How can I turn friendliness on like this? And then the Buddha uh, gave several uh, good advices. The first thing is that one turns the attention towards the positive or attractive aspect of whatever situation or being that is. I personally use uh, the one that's of course negative and positive aspect by all situations and all beings. So uh, it's just a, a clever way of directing one's attention, one's consciousness, one's awareness to strictly to these positive aspects. And then it's easy to feel this goodwill swell around the heart. One, uh, one object one can use that is universal applicable to all living beings is that all living beings uh, from insect to God to all kind of human beings to all beings that is on the other side of the universe uh, whatever alien form they have they will be enlightened. Just because they have this consciousness then we say they have the Buddha being in them they have this in Mahayana called Tathagatagarpa they have the Buddha nature so they will be enlightened eventually. Uh, it can take many billion universes, it can be tomorrow, uh, we don't know, but uh, what we do know is that they will be enlightened. And this, I think, is a very, very beautiful aspect, that we know one day all conscious beings, they will be completely rid of, they will have completely freedom, completely purity from all ignorance, all greed and all hate. And so up through the layers, they will become beings that are shining of light, like Deva beings or Brahma Devas. We call them Apasara. They are basically made out of light. and They, they feed on joy. So the higher levels of, of, of being are very, very positive. And this, I think, is something that one can use when we, we meet people who are in sorrow or who are aggressive or who are against us or who are against somebody we like then one can use this aspect, ah, but they also in the, in one day would be enlightened. So we share this with all beings, that we'll, we will all be enlightened one day. So turning the attention to that is easy to be friendly towards them. Then another thing is to, to think of one's a good friend, especially one's good spiritual friend, Kalyanamitta, also directly translated as a beautiful friend. A beautiful friend will be one who has a beautiful mind, and especially one who introduced you to the Dhamma. It can be both to think about the Buddha, of course, is the ideal case, but it can also be the monks or nuns or whoever spiritual friend one has that introduce, take you to the temple or help you in whatever way, give you advice. Uh, it doesn't need to be religious or spiritual advice, but any kind of helper can be a beautiful friend. This also, then one can calculate to say, okay, if I can have this a very positive, warm feeling uh, towards this being. It can also be, one can copycat one's uh, feeling towards a pet, a dog, or whatever one has very positive feelings towards, one's grandma or whoever it may be, and then calculate that, uh, copycat that to the people one is aversive towards, that is to get towards one's boss or parents or 
uh, former lovers or whatever it may be, then one feels in opposition to. Then this 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 opposition will melt away just by redirecting mind to the positive aspect. What's in the the effects? Yes, uh, we are all born with some mental defilements, and we we say there's three root defilements, three mula, three uh, root defilements. They are basically greed, hate, and ignorance, where ignorance is the deepest one, basically ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. But this one is specifically, one is always have a little bit of, of each, but uh, there will be some dominance uh, of one of them. And typically, uh, people who have uh, hate as, their, as a dominant defilement, uh, they will have a tendency to walk quickly, and to eat quickly, and to talk quickly. Uh, while those who have desire uh, and greed as a main defilement, they will have a tendency to the opposite, namely to sp- to eat and to speak and to walk slowly. While those who have ignorance as a main defilement, they will be dominated by doubt, uncertainty, speculation, worries, intellectualization, write very long letters and very long emails also. Uh, so this is just the basic classification. So this is this meditation method of universal friendliness or infinite friendliness is particularly well suited for those who have this dosa, this hate, as the main defilement. What if we take people can say, "But I never hate." Yes, but uh, if we dilute hate, then we get uh, then we get anger. If we dilute that even further, then we get aversion. And uh, if we dilute aversion, then we get opposition, just that you're against something, you're not with it, or you don't agree with it. And if we dilute even aversion even further, then we can get, get stubbornness, which is also a, actually a form of hate. And what is against uh, uh, taking up a new viewpoint, taking, taking up a new idea. And then mental rigidity will be the, the finest dilution also. This will be typically manifested in the, that one has, has a a lack of ability to adapt to a new situation. If you meet new people or get a new job or come into a new situation, new social situation, then one cannot adapt to whatever situation that is. So one is kind of like, not directly stubborn, but a little bit has some, some rigidity to, to, to reorient oneself towards new social situations. What about the other defilements? Uh, what Do they go away? If one practice metta, yes, they do. They, they do. Think about, for example, jealousy and envy. And jealousy and envy are not uh, pure defilements; they're mixed defilement. Uh, jealousy, or let's take envy, for example. There will be some desire for a given object, you can say money or fame or a big red sport car or whatever the situation may be. So one, one likes to have a given object. So there's some desire, some greed there. But then there's also there's some hate there. For the, to those who have it, those who are rich, those who have the object, those who are famous, those who are young, you are beautiful, or whatever desired object one wants oneself. So, because there is this mixture of hate or aversion towards those who have what one desires, then this this jealousy and envy also goes away when when one cultivates universal friendliness. So it's a whole it's a whole uh, a cluster of mental defilements that falls away. One uh, good, one I would say instructive, fruitful way of looking at samsara is to say, ah, there's no being wandering in samsara. It's just this set of mental defilements that is being reborn as habits. So if the habits we have here 
to be either uh, greedy or irritable or ignorant. These same habits, if we don't uh, purify them, they will be reborn with in the next life. So they go from life to life to life to life to life, endlessly until eventually that we purify ourselves, take up the noble eightfold way, and then purify ourselves ourselves and attain enlightenment. Then the round of rebirth, the samsaric round, uh, will be they will be ended. That will end with lasting happiness, uh, which is the same as nibbana. Then we say uh, there's eleven advantages uh, of of uh, of cultivating this metta, and what are they? One uh, falls asleep in comfort, and we discussed this in the in the car. One person here had uh, difficulty with falling asleep, and this I can recommend that those who have difficulties with falling asleep, maybe need medication, they can use this method in itself. So one tries to do it directionally, one can do it in six directions, in front, to the right, back, left, above, as below, but one can also do it in, in eight directions where one put, or in ten directions where one put the intermediate sides also. So in front of it, and then to this corner, and then to this corner. And usually it's so, that if you try to cultivate universal friendliness while on the pillow, while slumbering, and you try to do it in uh, ten directions, then you will not finish the job. You'll fall asleep before. And it's a very, very nice uh, way of falling asleep. I personally uh, uh, visualize myself embracing the entire planet and all the beings uh, on the planet Earth. One can do it even, uh, make it even more expensive. One can take the solar system, one can take the galaxy, one can take the entire cosmos. Uh, but nevertheless, the more beings you have inside uh, your umbrella or your embrace, the more effective it will be. And, and it's a very warm feeling, very positive feeling, and, uh, and it's indefinitely induced sleepiness. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, this is one of the advantages. One also wakes up in comfort. One dreams no evil dreams. One is dear to human beings. One is dear to all non-human beings, that is, all animals and all devas, hungry ghosts, uh, spirits, whatever they may be. Uh, the deities, the devas, uh, those you can, in the Christian context, call angels, or those who are any being that are above level five, the human level, uh, they are called devas, shining ones. They actually look down upon us and then protect us from, from various evils. Um, fire, poison, and weapons cannot touch one. What does it, uh, what is meant by that? Yeah, actually, that's a very good story. It's a lady. She's a very devout Buddhist at the time of the Buddha. Uh, her husband is not a Buddhist. And then she wants to invite the Buddha with his monks together uh, for one week for dana, for, for, for lunch. And then uh, she cannot entertain her husband. Then she uh, makes an agreement with a luxury prostitute to come and entertain her husband for that week. And he, he agrees to that. And she also, the, the prostitutes also agreed for that. But then uh, during this week where she works very hard to feed all these monks, then the prostitute comes to be very proud of herself. She wants to have the position of the wife in the house. And so uh, she uh, feels very strong jealousy towards the wife uh, because the wife is still in the house. So it ends up with he, her going down into the kitchen and then taking up some, a, a spoonful of hot oil and then uh, throwing on the wife. But uh, the wife, uh, in this case, she beams this universal friendliness towards the prostitute. She's a fairly advanced Buddhist. 
And so it said that the, the oil just pearls off. So it couldn't touch her. It, so she, when she, the prostitute sees that, then she becomes very frustrated. She wants to kind of like tarnish her face. So she takes another spoon and another spoon until the, she, the kitchen person will come and take her to the ground. So this is, this is a, basically the point is that it protects one from actually contact with this fire, poison, uh, and weapons. Eight, the eight advantages, the minds be, become easily concentrated. This is to say, if you are a meta meditation, one who, who regularly do this universal friendliness, then it's very easy to attain the state called jhana, or absorption, uh, because the, the defilements very easily go away. The expression on one's face becomes serene, or also it becomes uh, smooth. So I think it's the best uh, anti-wrinkle uh, therapy, much better than any plastic surgery. Uh, and whatever you can get of uh, things. And, and this typically you can see, this I see many times about my colleagues, that those who, who did this meditation, they would typically look 10 to 15 years younger than their biological age, whether male or female. So it's a very, very good uh, therapy. And the other situation also, if people who are very angry, they're angry for a whole life, then you can also see it in their face. Their face will be very wrinkled and also can kind of like have a bitter expression. Uh, the tenth is one dies unconfused and without panic. And the eleventh advantage is if one penetrates no higher, then one is reborn in the Brahma world among these shining Brahma devas. These are the eleven advantages one can get from this maintaining this universal friendliness. So uh, I think this is uh, more or less it. Regarding, I can say that he, the Buddha also mentioned another, uh, just to put it in perspective, he said, all the worldly merit, that is good karma, you do from doing good, whatever, is not worth one-sixteenth of the release of mind by universal friendliness. One-sixteenth, this was the expression he used. So, even though one, if one just look uh, superficially at friendliness, uh, which thereby also include harmlessness, ahimsa, because how can you how can you harm your friend? Then it looks kind of like it's something insignificant, maybe even romantic. But what the Buddha says is, say, uh, let's say for example, Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, they have a large foundation. They do a lot of good. They give a lot of vaccines away, more than uh, United Nations can do, and all other nations on the planet actually. So they do significantly good, huh? a humongous amount of good. So what he says is, if we can release our mind, then the karmic accumulation we will get is, is more, is more, uh, what Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates is not worth one sixteenth compared to the release of mind, to the karmic response of, of releasing one's mind from, from aversion, from resentment, from opposition. So it is really a big thing. It is not a small thing. It is not a small thing. It's not an easy thing either, but it's something that one can, train on lifelong, and then accumulate. So just imagine that we don't have the chance of doing what Bill and Melinda Gates uh, can do economically, but we still have the chance of doing it mentally. We have a, that, that's actually our option. And what the Buddha says is, if we do that, then we do more. We do more for ourselves and for the world than uh, Bill and Melinda Gates do from a comic point of view, from a future point of view. The second... Uh, Infinite state is compassion, uh, karuna. 
And there, I just like to say, um, if one does universal friendliness and one doesn't feel that it's genuine, it's some, some of my pupils have, have had this problem that they, after a while, then they feel it's not, uh, their friendliness towards all beings is not, it's something that is superficial or they cannot really uh, make the feeling around the heart come appearance. And also, I think it's important to say it's not something intellectual. It is something that one should feel around the heart, a warming feeling around the heart. And if this is missing, uh, then I can recommend uh, doing this compassion, uh, this meditation on universal compassion or pity karuna for some time. Uh, uh, how, how does one make this come into being? For, it can also be, for example, for soldiers or for people, for uh, killers, serial killers, uh, mass shooters and so on. How does one uh, arise compassion for these beings that one feels is very cruel? Yeah, this one can do by seeing the helplessness, helplessness. So if one looks from samsara, from outside, then you and I and all beings, we've been reborn a humongous number of times. Buddha said that, uh, can you see, he said to his monk, can you see this mountain over there, this Himalaya range? Yes, when I was there. Uh, just in this universe, you made a mountain of bones that is bigger than this mountain. So what is that you want? You want to make a mountain of bones more? Is that the way to happiness? And so, so you can say, this is uh, the perspective that we are all traveling in this samsara because of this greed, because of this hate, because of this ignorance that resides in the mind. Then, and, we, and we haven't purified it completely yet. Then we are traveling in this samsara. And this also goes for whether we are good or bad now or whether we were in the last life and so on. This goes for all of us. So in this sense, we are uh, over a prolonged period of time helpless. And seeing this helplessness also in other beings, this uh, can this make this, this compassion arose and say, ah, we are all in the same boat. We are all uh, caught in the same prison, more or less. In the same prison of our own invisible, but nevertheless very forceful defilements, mental defilements. So we are trapped in samsara by the same things. What is so? This is, of course, seeing the helplessness of all beings. What is the effect? Yeah, uh, cruelty. Any kind of cruelty based on violence, it goes away. As soon as one establishes this this compassion for all beings, then it's impossible to be cruel towards them. And this goes in the acute situation. If one is establishes compassion right now, then it's very difficult to kill an insect, and even harder to kill a whatever larger being than that. Uh, so this harmlessness and lack of cruelty, this is the immediate effect. On the little longer run, if you're not cruel towards any beings, that is to say, cut out all use of insecticides, uh, pesticides, rat traps, uh, and whatever it, it can be. So any kind of killing, any kind of cruelty, also as a youngster, also as a teenager, also as a young kid, this is cut away. Then the, the cruel effects of cruelty will be taken out of one's future. So this means uh, cruelty out will come back as cruelty later for, towards oneself. And this one then purified by this compassion. And, and this is of course, uh, if there's anything we don't want, then it's cruelty towards oneself. Right? Because your cruelty is often very painful, physically very painful. It also, before the cruelty actually occurs, if one has been cruel, uh, even to a minor extent, Think of insecticides or uh, uh, 
smashing mosquitoes uh, or what, whatever it can be, then it arises fear, anxiety, because mind knows ah, there has been some transgression towards other beings, other beings that also are looking for happiness, uh, that also are looking for peace. And so uh, the karmic effect, which just works like a mirror or like an echo, it will come. So mind knows that because it's tried it a billion, billion times before. Even though the individual doesn't ascribe to the karmic law, then mind still knows ah, out in the future, I cannot say when, but out in the future, there will be some echo of whatever cruel cruelty I did towards other beings. And so this causes of course, anxiety. And it's a difficult to handle anxiety because you don't know when. Uh, and often one has uh, suppressed the cruelty. They say, I, I wasn't cruel or forgot about it. Uh, think about, for example, use of insecticides or digging in the earth, uh, cutting earthworms and so on. In one's youth, 20 years ago, uh, it, it did happen, one can remember it happened, but often one suppresses it as it didn't happen. But it did happen. Then mind, it causing kind of like accumulation, small drops of anxiety, that it then accumulates over time. Can it cause sleeplessness, physical pain, uh, all kinds of mental discomfort. So, uh, again, the, the Dhamma works on, as a protection, as an umbrella, repeated, uh, redirecting mind to this aspect of helplessness of all beings and thereby make compassion arise for all beings, make it infinite by directing it towards all beings in the, ideally in the entire cosmos uh, of whatever nature they may be how alien uh, and green and uh, slimy they may be still one has compassion for them because one knows uh, they are also caught in samsara, they are also undergoing rebirth according to their karma what uh, some problem that can arise um, with this compassion is uh, people can sometimes ask me, yes, Bende, but now I feel compassion for all those who suffer. It can be poor people, sick people, uh, but then I feel sorrow. I feel sorrow. What about that sorrow? Yeah, then it's, it's kind of like a little bit failed, then one, but because one shouldn't feel sorrow uh, about this compassion. One should know uh, these beings are undergoing whatever they put forth into their own future by doing this or that, uh, by way of uh, thinking, by way of talking or speech, by way of acting, then they are forming a karmic future. So this they are undergoing. So uh, this we cannot run away from, we cannot escape it. We can modify it and improve it, but escape it we cannot. So this, is, this goes for all beings and at, at all time points. So this is not a reason to, to feel sorrow. Uh, a good way to, or a good picture I often use is to say, uh, what about if you look down in a nest where there's some uh, newborn, uh, new hatched, uh, small uh, birds that just come out of the eggs, they usually be blind and they have no feathers, or pups, very small pups from, have just come out of the, out of the dock and are still, are, still are blind, then they are very fragile. And uh, so one can feel a large portion of compassion for these small beings small birds or pups or, or animal babies, whatever they are. So they're very, very fragile. Uh, and one, it's easy to, to, to get compassion for them, but there's no sorrow connected with it. There's no sorrow connected with seeing small birds, even though they are fragile and it, they to some extent suffer because they are hungry and so forth. And the same goes, of course, with pups. A, another example the Buddha he gave to say how to make compassion arise, and he gave the following example, very colorful. 
So imagine, he said, at the, at the Buddhist time, there's a robber, and he has been taken to the king, and they cut off his hands and his nose and his ears. Now they have slung him into a, a house for the poor, and then he sits there with an empty pot, and there's maggot in his wounds, and he's been reduced to utterly miserliness. So is seeing on such such being that is reduced to this miserliness, this same same compassion one feels for such a being, one should feel for all beings, for feel for all beings. So I think this is this of course very easy to use such a person. On the other hand, one can also say, what about a very rich person or very powerful person that doesn't do any good and do another lot of evil? Then one can say, ah, I will also induce compassion for this person because I can see or foresee that this person, even though he's on a high position now, he's in a happy situation, or fortunate situation now, on a high position, high, high social position, or very rich, then because of not doing any good, then he will fall down again. It's like an apple hanging on the tree. Eventually it will fall down and rot. So one can also uh, induce compassion for, for these beings that are in, in these situations. And then all persons in between, or all beings in between these two, two extremes of one who is reduced to utter miserliness, utter misery, and then a, a person who sits on a, on, in a current situation, sits in a high position, but lack the, the view of the necessity, necessity of, of having to do good in life to maintain his high state. So these two uh, examples, I think, is, is easy to make compassion uh, arise. Again, think also the helplessness is the key, the helplessness. So the first key to friendliness was this positive aspect. Ideally, the aspect that all beings will become enlightened. Then it's easy to be friendly towards them. And the second key was this helplessness to get compassion to, to grow. The third, uh, Brahma Vihara, is rejoicing joy or mutual altruistic joy, sympathetic joy, mudita. What does it mean? It means that one is rejoicing in other beings' uh, success. So uh, actually, the exact opposite often happens in our society. We see persons who have a high situation in society. They are very rich or they are very famous or they are very beautiful. And then we react with uh, jealousy and envy. The whole society is kind of like being, uh, especially in the media, is being directed at inducing these feelings. And But this is the exact opposite one should do. One should say, ah, well, uh, everybody uh, got what they deserve to some extent. So, so there's no unjust uh, thing in being rich or being beautiful or being famous. So they earned it by themselves, by their good doings in the past. There can be many lives upstream. So uh, the opposite uh, way of looking at it is to say, is to say, ah, how good, how sweet it is to this that this being has attained this high situation. So one rejoices in their good doing and in their in their position. This does not mean that by any means, if they have wrong view uh, about reality and about uh, the, the cause and effect of karma of intentional action, then they will not stay in this state. And often it is so you you oscillate between the states. A poor person uh, might can be very humble and do a lot of good. This I experienced myself when I went at begging round. If I went around candy or, or in my local area around poor people, then I would get a lot. They will fill my bowl quickly. If I went into the rich quarters, then I will get almost nothing. It would be very difficult to get anything, actually. 
And so the, the, the effect is like that, that we just said the first will be the last and the last will be the first. So often there is an oscillation in samsara. The rich people, they, they, they become rich because of they have been poor and done good, they become rich, but then they fail to maintain their goodness. They become often arrogant uh, or very close uh, or very clean to their youth or to their richness. And then they will fall down again in richness and become poor or even fall down out of the human state. Uh, and so it will take over many lives, going back and forth between these two extremes. Not knowing, not seeing that it's an effect of our own intentions, whether we have generosity or not. So, so this is very common, one sees that over, over, over long time scales. But uh, the, the effect of, of this uh, rejoicing joy is that it is, is twofold, actually. and They're equally important. The first one is that uh, envy and jealousy goes away. And if you have no tendency to envy and jealousy, then all this unhappiness, this frustration, uh, can be small stings during the day by seeing people who have what one likes to have but, 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 but doesn't have. This goes away. Uh, and this, uh, both in the American setting but in, actually in, in, the, in the entire humanity, this is a very important factor. Envy and jealousy is something, it's a fairly common feeling also in the small dilute cases. The other thing is the Buddha say that uh, the proximate cause for feeling content, contentment, sanctuti, actually is this mutual joy. And this I think is very, uh, very well seen because uh, you can often see people that uh, have uh, a lot of goods, a lot of uh, material goods, but they're still discontent. It can be very difficult for rich people to find contentment, to find satisfaction, because everything they can find with going and buying it and going on, for example, tourism or a new boat or a new car or a new lover, this they already have tried for a number of, of uh, cases. So suddenly they end up in being frustrated, even though they have everything you can have. Uh, so, so contentment is not something, uh, it's not directly related to what you have. Uh, so just imagine that, so this, if one feels discontentment, also called frustration or dissatisfaction uh, in one's life, then it could actually be caused by what the Buddha say is a, a tendency to, or a lack of tendency to, to rejoice in other beings' success. So let's say one is uh, confronted through the media uh, 10 times or 20 times, maybe more than that, they say 50 times a day will rich people, beautiful people, successful people, uh, famous people, and then one react with a small moment of envy and jealousy as, as saying, oh, they don't deserve it. Uh, it should be me or somebody else or something like that. Or just not rejoicing in their, in their success. Just uh, feeling a sting of opposition or jealousy. Really. Then this will be enough to jack up, accumulate over time, a feeling of discontent, uh, frustration, in whatever situation you experience in life. Even in the situation that uh, there's a lot of richness and a material uh, success and uh, uh, everything should be good uh, seen from an outer circumstance point of view, but still there's an inner feeling of frustration. Then one can go back and say, ah, okay, then it's, might be, it's, it's time to go back to this mutual joy, mutual joy, rejoicing joy, rejoicing in other beings' success. What's the cause? How can one make it arise? That is a trick. Uh, it's called the boon companion in the text. 
The boon companion is the one uh, who you have in your life that is your best friend, uh, can be your best childhood friend. Because it is easy to rejoice in this particular individual's success. So uh, your boon companion, your best friend, one often uh, has uh, a very limited, um, almost no tendency to feel jealousy or envy towards them. So it's much more easy. So uh, if one f- thinks about them and say, ah, now, if we, even if they're not in a situation, but now they are in a good situation, they are in a good material situation or mental situation or family situation, ah, how good, how sweet it is, then one can copycat this feeling, this very same feeling, to all other beings in another situation. It takes deliberate redirecting the mind, but still, it is definitely possible. Even though if they don't have it, one can say, ah, then they will gain, certainly my friend, my good friend, will gain it in the future because of his good doing or her good doing, then they will come to a good future uh, in the future, and so we will rejoice in whatever good future they will achieve. The last thing is equanimity, upekka, uh, which is, is a prevention of, of desire to arise. Upekka, how to uh, make upekka arise? You can, upekka, what will uh, it, it translate to? Equanimity, serenity, imperturbability, and then one does not get disturbed uh, or agitated by given situations. So it is a situation where there's neither pain nor pleasure, there's neither attraction nor repulsion, there's neither approval uh, or favoritism, nor is there any opposition. So it's a completely neutral state. If it's felt, if one is aware of it, one feels this serenity, then it has a characteristic of a feeling of peace. One is staying in a, in a very imperturbable state that cannot be touched uh, upon, uh, that is felt as peaceful. If one is not aware of it, and the awareness is always good, mindfulness, sati is always good, if one is not aware of it, then can, it can be felt as boredom. So uh, there, there's this dichotomy. If it's very enjoyable, it's very, very uh, agreeable if one is aware of it, uh, but if one is unaware of it, then it can be felt as boredom. But nevertheless, uh, how does it come into being if one should uh, regarding other uh, other beings? Yeah, then one would say re- returning or redirecting the attention to the karmic law. That, and repeat this stanza: All beings are born of the karma. They are formed of the karma. They are conditioned by the karma. They are owners, inheritors, and debtors to the karma. Whatever they do, whether good or bad, only they will feel the future result thereof. So this has twofold uh, purpose. If, if regarding other beings, it can be used to say, ah, if other beings come against one, uh, then it might be the case that that uh, one should not oppose them. One should just endure it and say, ah, whatever they do, this is their karma. I should not get involved and start fighting. So this is their business, so to speak. And on the other hand, on, the, on one's own account, are they, my, why they come against me uh, in this situation? Uh, this might be because I have come against them on an earlier account, in an earlier life. So except I'm, I have to repay my debt, so to speak. So uh, then it will, in any situation of opposition or adversity in a social affair, it will put a dampening effect on it. And it will also make one's own stoicism one's own stamina to stay in there, hang in there, without opposing, 
without feeling any revengefulness, uh, without feeling any bitterness towards situations where one is, where it's difficult in life and where there are other beings involved. This will go away because one can stay in this state of peace, whatever the circumstances may be. One can accept the social circumstances, whatever they may be, to say, okay, uh, this is, I might be, I cannot see, I cannot say for sure, uh, but neither can I deny that this might be a, uh, a response of my own behavior in the past. So now, I'm, this is a many stories from the text that uh, beings say, uh, go from life to life and then cause revenge and back, back and forth, so to speak. One famous story was two females, it was started with a, a female who has a hen, and then she took uh, the egg every day from this hen. And then, of course, the hen didn't get any chickens, so she didn't get any babies. So she became very bitter towards the female. And so uh, they were reborn, uh, in next life they were reborn as the hen was reborn as a leopard, and the female was reborn as a deer. And then uh, the, every time the deer got a small uh, deer, then the leopard would eat it. And so they kept on, life after life, changing positions and keep on killing the their other's babies because of, of this old grudge that you don't see. You don't know why they feel this adversity towards other beings. Another story that comes to mind is uh, two Brahmins. Um, one story is that uh, the Buddha had a pupil. He comes to him in the street and he wants to become a monk. And then the Buddha says, ah, you have no robe, you have no bowl. He sends him out in, into the Indian city after a bowl and robe, and then he's gored down by a cow, one of these holy cows, which are usually very peaceful. So he's, he, it puts his horn into his stomach. And so they ask the Buddha, how come that be? And then he sees that those who were gored down, they had been human beings and then bought a prostitute many lives back, and then taken this prostitute out into the forest and had, uh, had her services. But then uh, after having this, her sexual services, they killed her and took her jewelry and uh, went into town and sold it. And she was later then reborn as a cow. When this cow sees this being again, without knowing it, this large feeling of aggression suddenly springs up. It doesn't know, doesn't remember the story, it cannot see it, but the aggression, the conditioning of the emotion towards the other beings, uh, having been killed by these other beings in the past, even though it's in a distant past, this is there. And so this is also goes for us and our social relations. Um, one good factor of equanimity or characteristic is that it just looks on. It just looks on. So if one can just look on our own, one's own mind, what's one's own mind is doing in every moment, then one can gain a very uh, precious insight of what this mental defilement story and what this mental purification is about. One can see, ah, now jealousy arise, now generosity arise, now peace arise, uh, now friendliness arise. Whatever that arises, one sees it arise. And when it's there, one sees it's there. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, let's say there's jealousy or there's irritation. So if equanimity is present at the same time, then one can say, ah, there's, now there's irritation in the mind or there's jealousy in the mind. It's okay there is it. It's okay. It's, it's, not just, it's not just mental. It's just accepted. And this is a, a very good road to seeing the mind as just as it is. While in the untrained case, one would often run into denial. When there will be jealousy, there will be irritation, there will be desire uh, or attachment. 
but one is in denial of the state being there. Either one is un- unaware of it or unmindful of it, so you doesn't see it. It's like having a spy in your camp without seeing the spies in your camp. But if even if seeing it in a short blixt of moment, and now there's jealousy or irritation, then the mind will deny that there's jealousy and irritation. And if this equanimity is trained, then the, the ability to just look on the mind and then just see uh, whatever there is, this, uh, this, then one can counteract it, start dealing with it. I see uh, if, I can, if I can stand at um, admitting to myself that I'm jealous or that I have envy or I have irritation or grudge or revengefulness or whatever it may be towards this or that uh, being in this or that situation, then one can handle it. One can start dealing with it. I remembering ah, what was it they said uh, towards envy and jealousy? Ah, this was this the counter medicine was this rejoicing joy. If I uh, practice this rejoicing joy, then my tendency uh, to envy and jealousy will evaporate gradually. Okay, enough. <laughs> Too much, maybe. Any questions? Otherwise, we'll take a meditation. Yes? At first I would say we, because I think uh, for me it's more like we're all in the same boat. Uh, so you and I and all beings, the number of rebirths we have undergone uh, is, is in principle endless. We cannot see the beginning of, of samsara. Huh? Nobody can. So it's not, a, it's not only a question of a Himalaya mountain of bones that you have made and I have made. Just imagine how many times we have died to make a mountain of bones and the sorrow connected with that. But this goes for all beings. So apparently uh, all beings has, has... Why have they not reached Nibbana? Why have they have not break out of samsara? Why have they not make themselves happy uh, many lives ago. There was, it was because of mental defilement, basically because of ignorance. Basically because of ignorance. So when I say helplessness, it's not absolute. There is a way out. There's this noble, eightfold way out of samsara. It is possible. But in, in the common case, almost uh, and unambiguously, then beings doesn't see this path. And even if when we do see it, then we have to see it many times. We have to experience it many times and develop it over many lives before eventually escaping Nibbana. So in this regard, uh, uh, it's not uh, all beings have the ability to enlighten and eventually they will enlighten. The question is the time scale involved and the amount of suffering involved. So, so I hope this answers your question. It's not that this is completely, we are not completely helpless. We, we can't be helped. But in most cases, think about all beings that are out there. How many are there compared to the, 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 the people in the United States? Huh? So, so uh, you know, uh, there's a chance, uh, but it's, 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 it's very tiny. The Buddha gave an example of, of a turtle. It's called the, the example of the blind turtle. Somebody asked him to say, okay, what if you fall, you experience downfall, you become into an animal state? What's the chance you can... You can calculate for yourself the number of animals on planet Earth. Uh, uh, and 
you take the number of human beings, 7 billion, and then divide with the number of animals, roughly speaking. We don't have the same lifetime, but you can get an idea about it. Take about the number of shrimps, insects, and so on. So it would be one out of thousand, one out of billion, something like that. So he said, what's the chance of coming back if you have experienced a down to a, a animal state? What's the, back to, the chance of coming back to human state? And then he gave the following example. I cannot say exactly, he said, but I can, can you give a simile? Can you, can you express a... Yes, he said, I can give a simile. Let's say you take a yoke, was one who had a round oxide in, in the old days, and you throw this yoke into the seven oceans, and it drifts around for 100 years. And then you have a blind turtle, a sea turtle, and it only dives out for breathing one every 100 years. And so uh, what is the chance that this blind sea turtle while having the yoke drifting around randomly of the seven oceans, that is, when it dives up exactly with the head inside the yoke, the chance of becoming human after they've experienced the downfall is the same as this chance. So this, you can say, ah, is it possible? Yes, it is possible. It is possible. But it's a rare event of returning from the animal state. So it's not completely, we're not completely helpless, but there's a large portion of helplessness involved for all beings, even for beings who are already have come to the path as you have, which actually have a chance to hear what is the Four Noble Truths, what is the Noble Eightfold Way, how do I found out of this suffering, how do I end suffering? So you you have a, a real, uh, uh, you can say substantial, uh, touchable chance, and and so also we have, but still uh, there's a significant amount of work involved. So still, even at that stage where we have the, the option, actually, many beings don't have the option. Uh, to think about your, your pets, for example, uh, or animal beings, cows that are led to the slaughterhouse, they have no chance of hearing the Dhamma. They have no chance of doing good. They have no chance of improving their own situation. Uh, so they are more helpless than we. Eventually, they will burn out the Kama. They will exhaust the Kama that have put them into the animal state of a cow or, or whatever it is. So eventually they will come home, but can take an immense long time. Um, I suppose many of us can call to mind people in our lives who um, maybe don't really necessarily have an option anymore. Um, friends, but perhaps they lack in another area. I would say, hang on in there, hang on in there. Think about this equanimity question, that one cannot for sure say that whatever situation, if there's no return of one's own goodness and one is taken advantage of, one cannot say for sure that it's not a response or an echo of that one has taken advantage of others in the past. And again, this no, no karma is eternal, it's not a destiny, it's something that is it's a probability that is gradually fading off. So it can be seen as a karmic debt again. So one should hang on in there. Um, in general, I also say, uh, whatever, whatever other beings do regarding the path and developing the path, then one should redirect attention towards oneself. 
one can uh, we can teach it here because you're you're very well motivated. You come here for for a reason, and you you like to hear about this. But in general, uh, whether one see hateful beings or greedy beings or ignorant beings outside there, uh, one should not blame them. One should just redirect attention to one's own defilement and say, "What can I do? What? Can, how can I purify my mind?" And so, what other beings do, well, this is their business. Uh, this is not something. If one can help them in any situation, well, then it's, it's very fine. But uh, in many situations, one one cannot. I don't think one should not try, but primarily direct attention towards purification of oneself. One will often uh, experience this self is, uh, the, the following. If one uh, focuses very strongly on purifying oneself, then one will experience that other beings, they follow sweet uh, by themselves, spontaneously. One doesn't have to uh, give any advice or... They point out any of their mistakes or anything. They they will come by themselves, just by one's own dedication, by being inspired by, by, by one's own efforts. So always, if there's something out there, if then redirect attention to one's own own mind. simple act of living and consuming does some harm and participating in a society and playing mm. the roles that society encourages us to play also at least indirectly contributes to some other problems. Indirectly. Yes. Okay, there's two shots at it. The first of all is uh, if it's unintentional, if you don't want to harm by being alive, any being, then you're not forming any karma. Huh? So let's say you, you, here you, you express a wish to attain absolute harmlessness. So uh, still if you go out and drive your car, then some insects will be killed by uh, smashing into the windshield. Huh? Something like that. But this unintentional, it's unintentional. So you are not forming any karma, you're not polluting your own future by that. Then the indirect effects of uh, taking up habitation, uh, feeding, you cannot feed, you cannot, uh, uh, for example, being vegetarian, this is often seen as being uh, more harmless than a meat eater. But uh, during plowing, doing uh, use of insecticides, uh, doing harvesting, uh, millions of insects are killed. So there's no, it's not possible to uh, get any kind of food unless you eat chemicals, but chemicals will also have effects, secondary effects. Huh? So it's not possible to, to take in any kind of food without there's somebody who has to pay for it uh, out there. They have secondary effects. So the, in the absolute sense, uh, then one has to go a place where there are no other beings that are, need space for habitation and no need no food. This state is in the ultimate case called Nibbana. There are no, there are, you can say, there are no bodies, 
there's no beginning, there's no time, there's no space, there's no nourishment, uh, there's no competition. Uh, there, it's the end stage, it's a complete harmlessness. A complete harmlessness. So, I used to say, okay, if you want to, to be a state where there's no imprint, there's no carbon imprint or any other kind of imprint that can be uh, a, a harmful to other beings, well then, go Nibbana. Go Nibbana. There you're sure. You're sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Keep working, keep working. Okay. What do you think? Ah, you have a question? Yes, so there's these two, two ways of reacting to the very same situation. Huh? Whether it's a red sport car or somebody who's beautiful, doesn't matter. If one realizes, ah, now, but it takes awareness. Huh? So see, now there is jealousy it's in, in my mind. Now I'm green, I'm becoming green. Then one should redirect mind right there and then stay with it and say, again, how good, how sweet that this being has apparently done, uh, so planted these seeds of good in the past to get the state now. Huh? And, and that's a fair evaluation because nobody gets to any state without paying the, the bill, paying the ticket in a karmic response. So uh, often one, uh, f uh, also politically, one has an idea that this people can get to a good state in an unfair way that is uh, kind of like not, they, they, they get something good without earning it. But uh, seen uh, from a quantum mechanical and karmic point of view, then uh, reality is, or the karmic law is exact uh, down to the very last atom of thought. So it's, it's, it, it cannot be more exact. It cannot be more exact. So there's nobody who comes to richness or to beauty or to a good reputation or bad reputation or whatever state they have uh, without planting the seeds to it, without planting the seeds to it, whether good or bad. So it, seeing this exactitude, that this is exactly as one has done, it's an exact reflection of the accumulation of one's own intentional activities over a long period of time, whenever one says something, whenever one thinks something, and whenever one does something. And this intentional activity is something that one has uh, accumulated or forms many times per second. Uh, how many times per second, we cannot say, but I would say in, a in the order of 1,000 to 100,000 times per second. One is forming by just one sensation, one is formed by visual sensation or auditory sensation or tasting something or touching something. One is forming an intention of what one wants to do with this sensation. Also, when you hear something now, see something now, you're forming intention about what you want to do, it, whether you want to take it in, whether you want to resist it, or whether you want to ignore it, for example. And this intentional activity is the karmic accumulation. Basically, is is accumulated as a probability distribution that goes is added up with the probability distribution of nature, and then what comes out of it is what our personal reality is. But 
long story short, if one sees jealousy, if one sees envy, then one can that specifically and acutely redirect mind to this mutual rejoicing joy. The more often one do it on the pillow as a systematic training, then uh, the less often one's tendency, latent tendency, to fall into this state uh, of jealousy and envy, will, it will be reduced. So this means that one will get uh, when we go more and more free, even when we have the same stimuli of seeing beautiful people or the red sport car or rich people, famous people, then we'll have a lesser and lesser tendency to react uh, unskillfully with jealousy and envy. And then we'll have a higher higher tendency to be able to rejoice, to appreciate other beings and their qualities. And this appreciation of other beings, I think, is... Uh, I think it's a, it's a way of feeling rich in some sense, and I, I think also it's, therefore it it's gives contentment, sanctuti. The Buddha, he said the one place, uh, our sanctuti, contentment, is the highest treasure. And I remember I once met a, in, in, in a train in Sri Lanka, I met a South African jeweler who was uh, probably very, very rich. Very, very rich. Uh, how rich, I don't know. But then I asked him this question together with his wife. Uh, what, what do you think is the highest treasure? He's a jeweler. He should know. Huh? But he didn't know. He couldn't not answer the question. And then I told her, oh, this is this contentment. And his wife agreed. Huh? Because you can say, if you can be content with nothing, and I actually experienced this in the jungle, in the forest, only having a rope and a bowl, a razor and a belt, uh, and then still being content. Much more content than I were when I was... Uh, a social professor with a car and a villa and a boat and whatever you have. Huh? So uh, contentment is uh, to see that this rejoicing joy and thereby this absence of jealousy and envy is the road to contentment, to road to satisfaction, the road to feeling uh, that this is enough, that you are in life circumstances that is okay, that there's enough of what you need. This is, uh, I think, very well seen by the Buddha. Very well seen. And therefore, this, I think this training is, it looks like something insignificant or romantic, but it's not. It's something very basic and uh, very elevating. Very elevating. More questions, or should we do some practice? Again, um, so uh, beings travel through samsara uh, in, in flocks, but mainly individually. So our, our path through samsara is strictly speaking individual. Huh? I cannot feel the, res- the, the effects of your karma, and you cannot feel the effect of my karma, but we can still inspire each other to form future karma. So, so in this way, we can think of. Uh, I would say, if one can, if one is the skillful way of seeing is, if something can be done, then if some if some help, some assistance can be provided, then provide it. C- certainly so, certainly so. 
But in the case that it cannot be provided, or one is uh, not the, the right person uh, to do it, then one should stay in equanimity. Uh, these are the two uh, situations. But one should uh, realize uh, this I mean, in many cases, or learned in the rough way as a doctor, uh, situation, you go, you go into a room, there's 10 cancer patients, and the, only one of them can be cured. And so you have a limited amount of attention and time there, and medicine and so on. The resources are limited. So what is the trick? The trick is to find the person, you don't know who it is, to find the person who's curable, and then uh, focus on there, uh, on the effort there. And then those identify those who are non-curable as non-curable, and there still there can still be provided. Uh, a, one can still try to uh, give them comfort by talking to them, but it's not a matter of medical treatment or surgery that should then be set aside to those where one can cure. Huh? Uh, in in my status as a Buddhist and also my status as a doctor, then I often tended to do fall into the fault of headbanging that I want to help everybody indiscriminately. And this was unrealistic. And then one, I think it was unskillful not to focus the efforts on where it really helps, where it really helps. But it takes uh, effort. In particular now, for example, as a monk, your business basically is, the Buddha, he will come into such a room here, then he will scan all the mind. I cannot do it, unfortunately. But he will scan the room of the mind, and because he has something called the Dasabala, the 10 powers, where one of them is to say, who in here can be enlightened uh, in this, if I say this or that? Who can be come up to the state where they only have seven lives left, called a Sottapana, one who has entered the stream? And then he will identify one or two, can be many, uh, depending upon the, 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 the group, uh, the setting, and so on. Uh, so this is, this is basically the same situation also for the doctor and also, uh, also for the monk. And it will also be your situation when you have to share the Dhamma with others, is to recognize in other beings who can be helped, who are listening, who are, uh, who are touchable and who are untouchable. Uh, the, big, the, the most uh, safest indicator is uh, the interest beings themselves express. For example, somebody has left the room, three or four here have left the room. So it can also be that they have other things to do, but they're other priorities, for example. So this one can, can graduate. Or if people ask questions or come to you yourself, or the patient uh, keep complaining about pain or whatever it may be, then one can say, ah, here is not the situation where you should stay with equanimity. Here you should use compassion and give the full, whatever you have to give, you should give that. You should give that. Because here it works, and not use it where, where it doesn't work. Okay, time for practice. <laughs> Please uh, be seated in a comfortable situation, uh, symmetrically, with your back straight, chin straight up, nose, nose horizontal, closed eyes, breathing through the nose. May I and all beings in this room attain, gain, sustain, and maintain universal friendliness. 
infinite goodwill. Endless friendship. May all beings to the right of us attain, gain, sustain and maintain infinite friendliness, measureless goodwill, endless friendship. May all beings to the back, left, below, as above, all across this entire Woodstock city, whether human or non-human, may they also dwell, stay in, live in this infinite friendliness. infinite goodwill, infinite friendship, May our sentient beings, our conscious beings, our living beings in Illinois, in the United States, in the Americas, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in China and Russia. May all beings on the entire planet, whether human or non-human, may they dwell in, abide in, 
infinite friendliness, infinite love and kindness, infinite gentleness, embracing the planet, with friendship. May all noble beings, all divine beings, all devas, all human beings, whether male or female, all animal beings, living on the earth or in the oceans, all hungry ghosts, Petas, all angry demons, Asuras, all hell beings, may they also dwell in, attain, gain, sustain, and maintain universal friendliness, infinite love and kindness. endless friendship. All beings in this entire solar system, may they dwell in friendliness. May all being in this galaxy, this Milky Way galaxy, in this galaxy cluster, in this cosmos, this universe, this multiverse, may they stay dwelling, remaining, sustaining this infinite friendliness infinite goodwill into an infinite future.
into an infinite future. May I and all beings in this room attain, gain, sustain and maintain infinite compassion, infinite gentleness, infinite harmlessness, May we not fall into any harm. May all beings in this city, in this country, on this planet, in this galaxy, in this cosmos, may they dwell, sustain and maintain infinite compassion, infinite harmlessness, infinite gentleness into an infinite future infinite future. May we and all beings in this room and in this city, in this country, on this planet, in this galaxy, in this universe, in this multiverse, in this cosmos, 
may all beings here dwell in rejoicing joy, mutual joy, joy over all beings' success in life and in samsara, in complete absence of all jealousy and envy. May all noble beings, all divine beings, all devas, shining beings, all human beings, whether male or female, all animal beings, all ghost, hungry ghost beings, angry demon beings, and hell beings, may they also develop and dwell attain, gain, maintain and sustain this mutual joy, rejoicing joy, gladness over other beings' success, in complete absence of all jealousy and envy. May they rejoice. Yuppie! May we and all beings in this room attain, gain, maintain and sustain equanimity, complete absence of all agitation, full serene peace. May all beings in this city, in this country, on this planet, in this universe, in this multiverse, in this cosmos, may all conscious beings dwell in, develop, maintain 
and sustain this equanimity, this serenity, this imperturbability, this balance, and complete absence of all agitation. Thank you.